Hello, and welcome to another podcast covering the August 14th issue of Time magazine. Uh, my name is Nancy Porter, and it is my pleasure to share this news magazine with you. And I need to remind you that you will be listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We'll start out with an article from the brief titled, Israel's War with Itself, by Carl Vick. The roots of the country's fight over democracy, where it could go next. For decades, the threats that defined Israel arrived from without and produced a basic cohesion. On security, Jewish Israelis spoke as one, historically giving the Israeli Defense Forces approval ratings near 90%. But the paroxysm convulsing the country in its 75th year, 75th year is wholly internal. The current crisis rises not from any Arab neighbor, several of which now enjoy cordial relations with the Jewish state, but over how Jewish Israelis choose to live. The question is fraught and appears to threaten the fabric of the nation. Like its borders, Israel's government structure is not fixed. It's a parliamentary democracy without a constitution. The prime minister sits in the Knesset, the legislature, and the only check on the majority is the Supreme Court, which at times decides its role for itself. Now, however, the Knesset has moved to take control of the Supreme Court. A law narrowly passed on July 24th that bars justices from overruling government actions. The power play, pushed by the most right-wing government in the country's history, has already sparked 30 weeks of massive street protests at the time of the vote with no end in sight. To win in last November's elections, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had to assemble a coalition that included parties so far right that they existed on the fringe. His national security minister was deemed unfit to serve in the IDF because of his extremism. Their grudge against the High Court dates to 2005 when the justices approved the government's removal of 8,000 settlers from the Gaza Strip. Now, their eagerness to expand Jewish control on the West Bank and their antipathy toward Arabs, including the 20% of Israeli citizens who are Palestinian, has found traction in the 73% of young Israeli Jews who identify as being on the right. With young people, the least liberal demographic, time is on the conservative side. Internal Divisions Israel has long been led by European, or Ashkenazi, Jews, even though most Israelis today are Mizrahi, who trace their origins to the Middle East and other parts of North Africa. They are more likely to be working class and religious, and are historically underrepresentative in positions of power. Netanyahu, though Ashkenazi, has long channeled Mizrahi resentments. 
They see the real goal of the protesters, a former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. argued in a recent op-ed, as to preserve the power lost at the polls by the Ashkenazi elite. Illiberal allies. Critics have claimed that Netanyahu's intentions for Israeli democracy can be detected in his, his embrace of Hungary's Viktor Orban and other elected Europeans with authoritarian leanings. Closer to home, Arab kingdoms that once promoted the Palestinian cause have found common ground with their erstwhile opponent. The Saudis admire Israeli's technic industry, its security products, like NSO's Pegasus surveillance tool, and have found users authoritarian regimes and share with the country an enmity for Iran. For Israel, these newer alignments serve as a counterweight to the West and its demands. Washington watches. The U.S. guarantee of Israeli security has many sources, but the core of that relationship is certainly on democratic values, the White House press secretary declared after the July 24th vote which President Biden had repeatedly warned against. His invitation for Netanyahu to visit the U.S. remains in place, however, as does support for Israel on Capitol Hill and the $3.8 billion a year in military aid. More to come. The crisis is expected to continue for months not least because the High Court is set to review the new law in September. And when the Knesset returns from recess a month later, it may take up another judicial reform, giving lawmakers a hand in naming jurists. Meanwhile, dissenters continue the search for leverage. Thousands of IDF reservists, for example, have vowed to stand down in protest. Netanyahu seemed sanguine about any security threat their loss might pose, perhaps understanding that at this point, a threat from outside the nation may be the one thing guaranteed to bring it together. And that involves reporting by Leslie Dickenstein, Sonia Mansour, Simone Shah, Olivia Waxman, and Julia Zorthian. The next headline, what it may mean for Palestinians. Much of the uproar over Israel's judicial overhaul has focused on its implications for the country's democracy. Less attention has been paid to what Israeli government intends to do with its consolidated power. One motive, experts say, is to further the ultranationalist rights ambition of unfettered settlement expansion and, potentially, annexing the West Bank. Israeli leaders make no secret of this. Extending Israeli sovereignty to the West Bank is in their coalition agreement. In their mind, the Israeli Supreme Court has been one of the biggest hurdles in the path toward realizing that dream, says Michael Schaefer, Omerman of the D.C.-based nonprofit Democracy for the Arab World Now. The implications for Palestinians are considerable. 
the high court, which they use to defend their rights in land disputes, represents one of the few institutions reigning in the settler right, at a time when Palestinians are increasingly subject to daily raids. The reality on the ground for Palestinians was bad before the judicial overhaul, says the International Crisis Group's Manzine, and it's bad now. Headline, this is from the section titled The Bulletin. Why a tuberculosis drug will reach millions more patients. This was written by Anna Gordon. The patent on the tuberculosis drug betaquilinine expired on July 18th. But while its manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson, could use secondary patents to extend its exclusive right to sell the drug, it instead struck an innovative deal that will lower the drug's price and expand access to it for millions of poorer people around the globe. A major public health win against the world's deadliest infectious disease. By the numbers, tuberculosis infects approximately 10 million people per year, killing some one and a half million. Over the decades, some strains of the bacteria that cause tuberculosis have evolved and can no longer be treated with the most common tuberculosis medicines. Roughly half a million people become infected with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis each year, requiring treatment with bedaquiline. The drug reduces the risk of death by approximately 10 percentage points according to a study in BMC Infectious Diseases. Yet, because bedaquiline prices are so high, many low- and middle-income governments buy fewer courses of bedaquiline and use older, more toxic, and less effective drugs to treat tuberculosis. Patented Profits Johnson & Johnson initially planned to enforce a secondary patent on a slightly altered version of the drug in more than 30 lower and middle income countries including South Africa, Pakistan, and Indonesia. Secondary patents are awarded to pharmaceutical companies for drugs that are similar to ones that it has already patented. By carefully timing the second patent, a pharmaceutical company can effectively maintain its exclusive right to manufacture a drug for years after the expiration of its original patent. A new type of deal. An unprecedented deal between Johnson & Johnson and Global Drug Facility, a nonprofit, could dramatically expand access to bedaquiline. The agreement, which was finalized in June and announced July 13th after a social media campaign spearheaded by author John Green, will allow for the sale and manufacture of generic bedaquiline in lo most lower and middle income countries. This is the first I'm aware of an innovative company like Johnson & Johnson giving a license to a unique entity like GDF, says Brenda Waning, chief of global drug facility. All right, let's move on to the next brief item titled, The News. Headline, 
Good question. How does COVID-19 affect the brain? Early in the COVID-19 pandemic, doctors noticed that for what was originally described as a respiratory virus, SARS-CoV-2 seemed to have a strong effect on the brain, causing everything from loss of taste and smell and brain fog to, in serious cases, stroke. Years later, cognitive decline, changes in brain size and structure, depression and suicidal thinking, tremors, seizures, memory loss, and new or worsened dementia have also been linked to SARS-CoV-2 infections. In some cases, these longer-term problems occur even in patients who had just mild COVID-19. The question now is what exactly is going on in the brains of people infected by SARS-CoV-2 and whether the damage can be reversed. Not long after the pandemic began, Dr. Avindra Nath, clinical director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, and his colleagues analyzed the brains of 13 people who had died from COVID-19. They did not find SARS-CoV-2 in those brains, but they did find damage to the blood vessels there, which were coated with antibodies. It looked as if the body's immune system had gone haywire, attacking its own blood vessels and setting off a cascade of effects that led to significant inflammation in the brain, potentially culminating in fatal damage to the part that controls breathing. In people who survive COVID-19, brain inflammation may also explain lasting symptoms like brain fog and memory loss, Naf says. Dr. Lara Jihai, who researches COVID-19 and the brain at the Cleveland Clinic, also points to inflammation as a possible trigger. In a 2021 study, Jihai and her colleagues compared the brains of people with long COVID and Alzheimer's disease. We found many areas of overlap between the two, she says, centered on inflammation in the brain and microscopic injuries to the blood vessels. Jihai's team wanted to determine whether the SARS-CoV-2 virus was entering the brain and causing damage directly, or triggering an immune response that led to brain changes. Their findings pointed to the latter, but researchers still haven't ruled out the possibility that the virus has direct effects on the brain. Indeed, since Nath's brain scanning project early in the pandemic, other researchers have found the virus in the brains of people who died from COVID-19. For a 2022 paper, researchers analyzed brain tissue from 11 people who had COVID-19 when they died. In all but one of those people, the researchers found the virus's genetic material in central nervous system tissue, which they wrote, proved definitely that SARS-CoV-2 is capable of infecting and replicating within the human brain. To NAF, however, 
That's still an open question. The research is inconsistent, he says. Some have found it, some have not. And some people who have found it have found only very small amounts. There is still a gap in knowledge there. Dr. Wes Eli, who researches brain disease at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, says he's convinced SARS-CoV-2 can attack the support cells of the brain, which ensure neurons can keep the brain and body functioning normally. Damaging these support cells, Eli says, can start a domino effect that leads to brain tissue death. But, Eli says, almost certainly there are multiple processes going on. It could be that the virus both directly affects the brain and causes changes to the immune system. We are not looking for a magic bullet that will solve all these problems at once, he says. At the moment, altering the immune system to reduce inflammation in the brains of people with long COVID is a promising route. NINDS is enrolling patients for a study on immunotherapy as a potential treatment for neurologic long COVID. That approach is exciting, Nath says, because it entails a therapy that is already used to treat autoimmune and neurologic conditions. So, if it proves effective, it could be rolled out to long COVID patients relatively quickly. As of now, there are no proven therapies for people with long COVID symptoms, neurologic or otherwise. But Eli says he's optimistic that COVID-related brain changes are reversible. The brain is incredibly neuroplastic, he says, and it can do amazing things. All right, we move on to an obituary of Tony Bennett, the timeless pop music icon. In the late 1960s, the music mogul Clive Davis told the crooner Tony Bennett to change his style and repertoire. Rock music had taken over the world, and jazz standards didn't cut it anymore, Davis argued. But Bennett stuck to his guns. And over the next six decades, his fierce devotion to a bygone musical era would both revitalize the American songbook and make Bennett, who died on July 21st at age 96, one of the world's most enduring and beloved music stars. Bennett served in World War II on the Western Front and toiled in small New York club gigs for years before being discovered by the comedian Bob Hope in the 1950s, he became one of the country's foremost pop idols, singing regularly to audiences of all ages at the Copacabana and Carnegie Hall. His most famous song, 1962's I Left My Heart in San Francisco, went gold, became the official song of that city, and was cherished by homesick soldiers in Vietnam who achingly sang along with tiny jukeboxes. Bennett's expressive, enveloping singing voice never wavered. 
Miraculously, he achieved his greatest commercial successes in his last dozen years, some half a century later. As an elder statesman, Bennett turned his focus to duets, introducing the fans of his younger collaborators, from Stevie Wonder to Amy Winehouse, to classic American songwriting. In 2011, at age 85 years old, he scored his first number one hit on the Billboard 200 with Duets 2, making him the oldest artist ever to top the charts. When Lady Gaga was struggling with fame and physical pain, Bennett took the young star under his wing. The unlikely pair proceeded to form a deep musical bond, record the number one album Cheek to Cheek, and tour across the world to the tune of $15.3 million. I tell Tony every day that he saved my life, Lady Gaga said in 2014. For many, Bennett was synonymous with class, craftsmanship, perseverance, and American excellence, a great of the greatest generation. He marched at Selma and donated time and money to civil rights, arts education, and cancer research. After being diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2016, he continued to deliver knockout performances of songs he had learned some 60 years prior. Bennett died in a Kennedy Center honoree, an NEA jazz master, a 19-time Grammy winner, he sang for every American president from Eisenhower to Obama. For my money, Frank Sinatra said several times, Tony Bennett is the best singer in the business. And that obituary was written by Andrew Chow. And here's from the world of health. Headline, Five Healthy Ways to Deal with Anger. This is written by Angela Haupt. One of the easiest things about experiencing anger is finding a colorful word or phrase to describe it. Steaming, fuming and fired up and furious, pissed off, ready to flip your lid, livid. Such an extensive lexicon speaks to the universality of anger, one of the most primitive emotions humans experience, and in some ways, one of the most complex. People don't like to feel angry, and most people who do feel angry want to get rid of the anger, says Brad Bushman, a professor of communications at The Ohio State University who studies human aggression and violence. But it also makes people feel powerful. That can be channeled into a positive force. Consider that anger has fueled many social and political movements, from women's suffrage to Black Lives Matter. The feeling can signal that something we're experiencing or observing is misaligned with our values or how we want others to treat us or our fellow humans. Unfortunately, experts say, most of us don't know how to deal with anger in a healthy way. It's the negative emotion that people have the most difficulty regulating, Bushman notes. This isn't something that comes easy. 
That's why courts send people to anger management classes. If it were easy, they wouldn't have to do that. Anger drives numerous societal problems, Bushman says. It's one of the largest risk factors for aggressive and violent behavior, including road rage incidents, domestic violence, and murders. Plus, it can lead to short and long-term health effects, including heightened inflammation and risk of chronic illness, reduced lung function, chronic pain, digestive problems, and increased depression and anxiety. Research suggests that in the two hours after feeling angry, a person's risk of a heart attack jumps nearly five-fold. We asked Bushman and other experts to share the healthiest ways to cope with and express anger. Number one, focus on relaxing instead of venting. When we're angry, Bushman explains, we're highly aroused. Venting or otherwise blowing off steam, even by going for a run, keeps arousal high and is like using gasoline to put out a fire. It just feeds the flame. Instead, you should reduce that arousal level, Bushman suggests, turning down the heat by practicing deep breathing, meditating, or doing yoga or progressive muscle relaxation. Number two, take a time out. Tony Fiore has been teaching anger management with a focus on repairing relationships for decades. One of the first tips he imparts to his clients is, it's okay to get away from each other. If you prevent somebody from leaving, they can become like a wild animal, says Fiore, a psychologist who is the author of books including Anger Management for the 21st Century. Sometimes getting away for 10 minutes, or an hour, or a couple of hours, drastically changes things when you do come back. Use that break to figure out how you would like to calmly respond instead of immediately reacting while you're all riled up. Number three, try the 30-30-30 intervention. First, take 30 seconds to extract yourself from the situation, perhaps by leaving the room or stepping outside, says Laura Beth Moss, a supervisor with the National Anger Management Association. Then, Distract yourself for 30 seconds by doing something else, even planning what you'll have for dinner. After that, use the final 30 seconds to create a coping statement that will help de-escalate your emotions. Say you're fuming about how much of a jerk your boss is. A reframe would be something like, I don't prefer it when my boss talks to me in a condescending tone. But, deep down, I know I'm not a product of that relationship, Moss says. Number four, keep an anger log. It's a simple but effective way for those interested in better controlling their emotions to analyze how, when, and why they get ticked off. 
Typically, Moss instructs his clients to track one anger situation a week, which means writing down what happened and when, how it made them feel, and how they responded. That presents an opportunity to strategize ways to think about and respond to triggering situations. And finally, number five, use assertive communication. The goal is to be respectful of yourself and the person you're talking to, says Julia Baum, a licensed therapist who practices in both New York and California. Aim to share your feelings. Explain to the other person why you feel that way and let them know what you hope to get out of talking about it together. Make a point of checking in with the person you're talking to about how they are feeling. Ask them if there's anything they are feeling upset with you about, Baum suggests. They might have been rude because they were angry about some earlier encounter that you didn't even realize. All right, let's move on in the same August 14th issue to the best-selling young adult author Elizabeth Acevedo has written her first novel for adults and it's full of magic. And this was written by Nicole Chung, who is a time contributor and the author of A Living Remedy. The kernel of the story that would become Family Lore by Elizabeth, Ace Elizabeth Acevedo's first novel for adults came to her in college after a visit with one of her aunts in the Bronx. Acevedo, who'd spent many of her childhood summers hosting cousins from the Dominican Republic or traveling to see her family there, had long been curious about her relatives' linked but disparate histories, and she began to think about how she might tell intergenerational stories loosely inspired by the experiences of the women in her family. She wouldn't begin working on family lore for another decade. A former 8th grade English teacher, she spent much of her career writing for young people. The Poet X, her 2018 debut novel in verse about a teenage poet in Harlem, won the National Book Award. She followed it up with two more young adult bestsellers, With the Fire on High in 2019 and Clap When You Land in 2020. Acevedo, who was named the Young People's Poet Laureate in 2022, thinks she hit her stride as a young adult author in part because she understands how to write for young people without talking down to them. There's nothing like kids telling me, I'm also a poet and it's a secret, or Exiomara in The Poet X makes me feel known, she says. It's one reason she finds widespread book bans so gutting. She worries about young readers being cut off from stories both like and unlike their own. Though she plans to write for young readers again, she felt eager for a new challenge. I never want to be known as this one single thing, she tells me, sitting in her cozy office in southwest D.C., her favorite books artfully arranged on the wall behind her. 
She speaks with a gentle, thoughtful conviction, and I get the sense that she answers with care, not because she's worried about what she might say, but because she has such deep respect for words and the weight they can carry. She explains that for her, writing for adults is largely a difference in register. She's drawn to some of the same questions explored in her young adult novels, including what love in a complicated family can look like. But she's okay letting older readers do a little more work to follow leaps in time and shifts in perspective, offering them less hand-holding and an ending that feels more open. I don't hold back, she says. It's bare knuckle. It felt like I could take risks that I just have to own. In Family Lore, which came out on August 1st, Floor, a seer of deaths, summons her family, including sisters Matilde, Pastora, and Camilla, daughter Ona, and niece Yadi, to celebrate her life at a living wake, causing them to wonder whether she saw her own death. Endowing her characters with extraordinary gifts, one sister grasps another's truths, one sister has a talent for herbalism, Ona possesses an alpha vagina, allowed Acevedo to consider what had formed them and what each desired, while grounding them in a strength all their own. Acevedo's treatment of magic as an everyday possibility is compelling. But there is also magic in the wonder, surprise, frustrations, and joys the characters experience in their relationships with one another. She came up with the idea for a living wake after watching a documentary on how people commemorate death. She realized it could hold all of these women's stories, putting pressure on them in interesting ways. When you think about death, she says, you begin thinking about every choice you have ever made. When Acevedo was small, a babysitter with a forest of houseplants suggested she talk and sing to the plants to help them grow. Young Liz discovered the joy of making up songs, but felt upset when she couldn't remember her verses. One day she thought, I'll know how to write, and then I won't forget. She wanted to be a singer. Then her older brothers sparked an obsession with hip-hop. She joined the poetry club in high school, competed in her first slam, and attended workshops with teaching artists. She went on to George Washington University where she entered an interdisciplinary major, a blend of poetry and performing arts. Working as a teacher after graduation, Acevedo struggled to find time and energy to write. I'm not a good person when I'm not writing, she says. She applied to MFA programs and by the time she graduated from the University of Maryland in 2015, she had published a poetry chapbook and submitted a draft of The Poet X to an agent. The author, Clint Smith, who first met Acevedo through the DC Poetry Slam scene in 2012, 
considers her an exemplar of how to take the craft seriously. A lot of writers are very skilled, but don't work 10% as hard as she does, he says. Starting out in a new genre can feel like dipping your toe in, but Liz is doing cannonballs. Acevedo is fascinated by ensemble storytelling, one of family lore's many strengths, and how we all participate in it. It's curious what people are incapable of saying about themselves or their past, sometimes because of trauma. But then you'll learn that from cousins, from her, from her mom, she says, in some ways, this book is a project about how, how to know what's ultimately true. It is also, like all her novels, the project of a poet. Her obsession with imagery, interiority, and making every word count is what makes her descriptions and dialogues sing. Her characters think and speak in voices that feel distinct and alive. We often talk about representation in a way that feels flat, as if it's merely the checking off of boxes, when in fact, it's about the rendering of dimensional humans, says Naima Coster, whose novel, What's Mine and Yours, is among the many displayed in Acevedo's office. Liz doesn't just render individuals, she writes about webs of relationships. I see her as someone who's leaving important historical and literary records. Writing family lore helped Acevedo quit the desire to be liked and focus instead on telling the story she wanted to tell. She began practicing ancestor worship a few years ago and says the idea that she is loved and being guided has given her a clear-eyed approach to her art that she feels new. She has learned to trust herself and her writings in ways she didn't before. She's now working on more novels, but snippets of poems keep coming to her as they did after she gave birth to her first child last fall. Visiting her son in the neonatal intensive, intensive care unit, nursing or pumping at all hours, she found herself taking notes she recognized as verse. Poetry is the first language I was thinking in. It's what I fall back on, she says. I have to get really close to the bone of what I'm going through. A poem does not let me lie to myself. Now we move on to the section titled The View. And here's an article from the World section titled Nuclear Deja Vu by Mary Robinson. J. Robert Oppenheimer's shadow has stretched well into the 21st century. We are still living in the nuclear age he helped create in 1945 and still confronted with the same moral and political dilemmas he wrestled with about weapons of mass destruction. Now, Christopher Nolan's new film, Oppenheimer, offers a chance to reinvigorate public debate about nuclear threat. Oppenheimer was horrified by the terrible power of the technology he had helped create. His story should sound as a wake-up call to global leaders and citizens alike 
who continued to exhibit alarming complacency and fatalism about the existential risk of nuclear annihilation. Russia's war on Ukraine has heightened the threat and rendered much more difficult the prospect of meaningful U.S.-Russian dialogue on arms reduction. Its absence makes it all the more imperative that Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping put reducing nuclear risks at the top of their agenda whenever they next meet. Progress could help ease Sino-United States mistrust and improve wider geopolitical stability. Yet, when the nuclear threat is greater than at any other time since the height of the Cold War, all leaders in all states bear responsibility. As a young woman, I marched alongside hundreds of thousands of protesters against the bomb. Now, a grandmother, I am appalled that my grandchildren still face the same specter of nuclear war. And I ask myself, where are today's marchers? The silence is intolerable. The hands of the doomsday clock stand at 90 seconds to midnight. The erosion of the taboo against using nuclear weapons, including from Vladimir Putin's open threats to do so, the breakdown of the remaining nuclear arms control architecture between Russia and the U.S., and the emergence of potentially destabilizing new technologies, including artificial intelligence, have raised the risk level to frightening heights. China's apparent decision to significantly expand its nuclear arsenal, political instability in Pakistan, North Korea's defiance of the United Nations Security Council, and instability in the Middle East add further dangerous pressures. The record of close calls over the past 80 years suggests that it has been more through luck than great statesmanship that we have avoided catastrophe. The only guarantee against the use of nuclear weapons is their complete abolition. Yet the world's nuclear powers continue to expand their arsenal and reaffirm the role of nuclear weapons within their security planning. The U.S. and Russia bear particular responsibility for this. They possess around 90% of the world's nuclear weapons and have dangerously undermined nuclear arms control over the past two decades. But other nuclear states, including China, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and the United Kingdom, are also expanding their capabilities. In this context, total nuclear disarmament is not realistic in the near future. The immediate focus should therefore be on reducing the threat of nuclear catastrophe by establishing a new U.S.-China risk reduction dialogue and restarting U.S.-Russia nuclear dialogue. The elders the NGO that I currently lead, has proposed a nuclear minimization agenda that we believe could provide a helpful framework for making progress. It will be very difficult to tackle the nuclear threat 
unless there is sustained international pressure on the world's nuclear powers. That means greater public engagement and grassroots activism to challenge the questionable assumptions that underpin the thinking of the nuclear establishment. I hope the release of a major motion picture about the origins of the nuclear bomb will spur a wider debate about the issue. While there is good reason to be alarmed about the current dangers, we must not despair. History shows us that progress can be made to reduce nuclear risks through international cooperation, as Oppenheimer had hoped. The number of nuclear weapons has declined from around 65,000 in the mid-1980s to 12,500 today. With global leadership and dialogue, further progress is still possible. In Oppenheimer's farewell address to the Association of Los Alamos Scientists in November of 1945, he told them that atomic weapons are a peril which affects everyone in the world. I think that in order to handle this common problem, there must be a complete sense of community responsibility. End quote. These prescient words remain relevant. They must drive out our collective efforts to contain nuclear risks if we are to prevent the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki from being repeated at a scale beyond even what Oppenheimer could have feared. And that article was written by Mary Robinson, a former president of Ireland and chair of the Elders. And I think the last article we t will tackle for today from the August 14th issue of Time magazine will be in the Risk Report by Ian Bremer. Headline, There's Still Hope for Ukraine's Grain and for Global Food Markets. On July 17th, Russia suspended the Black Sea Grain Initiative, a deal brokered last year by the United Nations and Turkey that has moved some 33 million metric tons of grain and oil seeds from Ukraine to foreign ports. That deal, which Russia also briefly suspended in October of 2022, provides big benefits for poorer countries struggling with high food prices. Now, Moscow claims the right to treat any foreign ship heading for a Ukrainian port as a legitimate target of war, making it impossible for outsiders to protect grain ships and pushing up shipping and insurance costs. But there are several reasons Russia's attack on Ukraine's food exports probably won't trigger an emergency for global food prices and the political turmoil that often comes with it. First, Ukraine is already sending larger amounts of food over land and by river. Data from the United Nations and the U.S. Department of Agriculture show that about 47% of the country's wheat exports, 40% of its corn shipments, and 60% of exported sunflower oil reach global markets via Europe through those routes. 
Second, following a record harvest, Russia now has more wheat and grain to export. Its own Black Sea exports will continue, easing some of the upward pressure on global food prices. Despite Ukrainian threats to attack Russian shipping, its high spending on its own shipping and insurance will limit what Ukraine can afford to attempt. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has also forecast big increases in corn and wheat production in coming months in Argentina, China, the European Union, Turkey, and the United States, which will help offset reduced exports from Ukraine. There are caveats here. Any fall in the global supply of agriculture products could persuade some governments to restrict their own food exports. In April and May, fears that a surge in Ukraine's overland food exports would hurt their own farmers led Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, and Slovakia to impose temporary import restrictions, urging the European Commission to let them extend those limits to at least the end of the year. Any fall in the global supply of agriculture products could persuade some governments to restrict their own ex food exports. In April and May, fears that a surge in Ukraine's overland food exports would hurt their own farmers led Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, and Slovakia to impose temporary import restrictions, urging the European Commission to let them extend those limits to at least the end of the year. The European Union is now trying to help Ukrainian grain exports pass through Europe to be shipped to non-European Union buyers. Finally, higher food prices risk unrest in countries heavily dependent on food supplies from the region. Egypt hopes to buy more Ukrainian grain shipped across Europe. A Kenyan foreign ministry official has called Russia's decision to suspend the deal a stab on the back. Moscow is aware it now has real public relation problems in poorer countries. But though more uncertainty in Ukraine will create risks for global food prices, all the key players are now better able to manage the fallout. And we will stop there with our coverage of the August 14th issue of Time magazine. Again, I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you. <laughs>